Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. My name is William Hudson, professor of political science and host of this podcast. All the views you hear on this podcast are mine and those of my guests. For today's podcast, I invited back to Beyond Your Newsfeed the Political Science Department's constitutional law expert, Professor Paul Heron. As listeners may remember, Paul has a PhD from Brandeis University and a JD from Northeastern University. Since 2016, he has taught courses at PC on constitutional law, civil liberties, law and society, and the Supreme Court. I wanted to talk to Paul about two topics that bear upon uh, constitutional issues and the role of the courts. First, uh, we're going to spend some time, as you will hear, talking about the recent attempt to impeach and remove from office President Trump. And second, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court's current term and what interesting cases are coming before the court. For the impeachment discussion, I wanted to rise above the partisan fray and get at a constitutional expert's perspective on what happened over the past few months and what it teaches us about the congressional impeachment power. How has the impeachment of President Trump and his acquittal in the U.S. Senate affected the role the impeachment power is likely to play in the future? And were the arguments we heard in the Senate trial on both sides consistent with how constitutional scholars understand high crimes and misdemeanors? I think you will find that Paul has some interesting insight into these questions uh, and that I hope that we did rise above the partisan fray and try to do some real uh, analysis of the constitutional issues raised. One of the interesting parts of the conversation you will discover is Paul's take on how to handle these difficult and fraught issues in our polarized times in the classroom uh, without becoming partisan. Uh, he has some interesting perspectives on, on how he approaches that. On the Supreme Court discussion, Paul brings up a number of interesting cases uh, that we're going to be uh, reading more about this spring, and a very important gun rights case, uh, a case involving access to abortion, and also the executive power of the president, uh, which ties into uh, the recent uh, arguments uh, in the impeachment process. So here is my conversation with Professor Paul Heron and his take on both impeachment and the current Supreme Court term. Paul, welcome back to Beyond Your News Feed. Thanks, Bill. Uh, last week, the Senate trial of President Trump on the two articles of impeachment that had been brought against him by the House of Representatives uh, concluded with his acquittal. Uh, the House had charged President Trump with abuse of power, and the second article of impeachment was obstruction of Congress, and the senators, a majority of the senators, voted to acquit the president on both of those articles. So uh, the impeachment process is now over uh, with the acquittal of President Trump. So from your perspective as a constitutional scholar, what have we learned from this experience? What have we learned about the Constitution and about impeachment uh, from what just happened these last few months? I think maybe the first thing we've learned is that the constitutional separation of powers as they were set up are not sufficient to 
counter the partisanship that the framers did not account for. So at this point, if a president can have simply 34 senators of their party uh, vote to acquit, they will not be able to be impeached. And that's what it feels like at this point. So it's kind of uh, uh, the partisan divide colliding with uh, a system set up without political parties. Yeah, and the framers didn't anticipate political parties, right? They as- no. They, uh, they assumed that, uh, in fact, they, w- they were hostile to the, even the idea of political parties, and they assumed that Congress would be made up of essentially independent representatives of their districts and responsive to those concerns, and also that they would be concerned about the power of the institution in which they were lodged, right? Madison said ambition counteracts ambition within the separation of powers. But you're saying political parties basically have destroyed that well, that under, that conception of the separation of powers. Well, it certainly makes it difficult if a, a member of the Senate sees themselves as a Republican before they see themselves as a member of the Senate. So it means that they will vote in favor of a president from their political party, regardless of whether or not that president has defied what Congress has tried to do. So it, do, it, it kind of undermines the institutional balance of power. Are you saying then that the whole idea of impeachment may be uh, dead, that it's, a, it's now maybe a, con- a constitutional dead letter, that we, that we even have this power, that in fact it only is going to be a, a kind of partisan instrument? If we accept the arguments made on behalf of the president, then it, it certainly feels that way. And what were some of those arguments? Well, I mean, I think one of the interesting things is to think about what what exactly, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors means. I mean, there are three criteria by which you can impeach, right? Yeah. Treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors. Treason and bribery, you can understand, but high crimes and misdemeanors is a little bit ambiguous. The argument on behalf of President Trump was that his actions did not amount to high crimes and misdemeanors. And in fact, Alan Dershowitz at one point made the argument that... Alan Dershowitz, who was one of the attorneys Alan Dershowitz on, on, on Trump's defense team before this in the Senate trial. Yes, in representing, representing Trump, argued that abuse of power is not actually impeachable. And it was uh, kind of jaw-dropping to listen to because right. his, his argument was essentially that because at the convention in Philadelphia, when they were designing impeachment, they had rejected maladministration as one of the criteria for impeachment, that they also rejected abuse of power. Uh, you know, I, I don't think most other scholars of impeachment agree with that assessment. They think or that... any other scholars? <laughs> maybe any. I don't, um, I, I don't think I've ever heard it, that argument made. Because maladministration uh, speaks to, you know, making bad decisions as president, not making corrupt decisions as president. Yeah, so the founders rejected the maladministration conception because that could have resulted in a president being impeached just because... He made a mistake, uh, or right. could George or, Bush be impeached for the invasion of Iraq? Right, or, for instance, or or not responding properly to Hurricane Katrina? Exactly. Right, 
uh, as opposed to doing something to uh, as Trump did. Maybe we should back up a little little bit and and talk about the case for impeachment that the House managers made. So there were these two articles. So uh, what was the foundation of that? And then we can talk a little bit about the president's defense of those articles. So on the abuse of power, what precisely was the abuse that the House managers uh, accused Trump of? The abuse of power was based on Trump withholding military funding and a White House meeting uh, for the new president of Ukraine, Zelensky, in hopes of getting an investigation announced into Vice President Biden and his son. The idea was that Trump was using the powers of his office in order to uh, help his own political interests, his own campaign for 2020. Rather than uh, the national interest. Exactly. The second article was uh, obstruction of Congress, and that had to do with the fact that Trump denied or issued a blanket refusal to cooperate with the uh, impeachment inquiry. They would not turn over any documents. They told all witnesses not to testify. The only ones who did testify did so on their own accord, despite a directive from the executive branch to not cooperate. And in that directive, interestingly, they didn't explicitly assert executive privilege, right? We have this notion of executive privilege that says, uh, and this has been recognized uh, by the courts in the past, that on some matters and some advice that the president gets from his advisors is privileged. That is, it doesn't have to be revealed uh, to the Congress. Can you, can you say a little something about that, the traditional notion of executive privilege? The, the traditional notion of executive privilege, there would be a fight over a specific testimony or a specific set of documents that might undermine the advising procedure that the president receives or connected to claims of national security, not a blanket pronouncement that the executive branch will not cooperate with an investigation by the legislative branch. I mean, for example, let's say a natu- national security advisor to the president was advising him about how he should approach a conversation with a foreign leader. You know, should he be nice to the foreign leader or should he? And that maybe would be uh, allowable under the doctrine of executive privilege. That's a good example, yes. Okay, so because a, a president should get some very honest and clear advice from an advisor on a matter like that. But it was usually considered very narrow, right? Narrow, and certainly not in the furtherance of a crime. And in this case, the president essentially told his, actually everyone in the executive branch, not to cooperate, uh, but didn't really explicitly say because of executive privilege. But but one assumes that could only be the, the only grounds, right? It seems like that would be the only ground, but there's no privilege that exists that's so broad. Though a president might assert it, right? They might, but they would likely fail on that broad of an assertion of, of privilege. Yeah. Okay, so those that, that was the House manager's argument. So uh, let's then look at both of the articles and the defense that the president made. You mentioned Dershowitz. Now, not all of his uh, uh, lawyers actually promoted that argument that this wasn't an abuse of power. What other kinds of arguments did they make to defend Trump? On the, if we stick with the obstruction of Congress argument, there was basically a process argument that 
uh, the, the, the Congress had failed to go through the courts and get a, get a final judgment on whether or not uh, these individuals could be forced to testify and whether or not these documents had to be turned over. And, and on the abuse of powers, some, some arguments were made that uh, the president couldn't be impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors because no actual crime occurred. That is, if you or I called up the president of Ukraine and said, oh, please open an investigation uh, into Joe Biden, we wouldn't be subject to prosecution for doing that, right? Right. Uh, we, you know, that's, that's kind of freedom of speech. Why is it a problem when the president does that? So uh, this, this gets to the kind of heart of the matter in terms of what's the future of impeachment going to look like and, and maybe a little bit about what, the, what impeachment has looked like in the past. And that's, does high crimes and misdemeanors mean the violation of a specific law? Now, they argue that it does, right? Because they there's not a specific law that the uh, House managers can point to to say that Trump violated. Though I think that he did violate some set of policies that, he, that with regard to distribution of, of funds that have already been allocated. Um, but it's it, there's not a kind of clear-cut legal violation that they can point to. So this is one of their arguments. The interesting thing about that is the history of impeachment does not lend itself to the argument that you have to violate a specific law. If you go back and look at what Alexander Hamilton said in Federalist 65, he referenced it was particularly about the misconduct of public men, right? The abuse or violation of some public trust and saw the, the, the process as something that was political and not necessarily legal. The term high crimes and misdemeanors is very old. It comes from you know England back to the uh, 14th century, I think. And they chose it because they wanted to have a kind of broad set of criteria under which you could impeach a president for essentially abusing his office. And we'll, you know, if you look at the the other two impeachments that have happened prior to Trump, you'll see that they tried to use laws to remove a president, right? So the first was Andrew Johnson, of course, and most of the articles of impeachment, there were 11 articles of impeachment. Lincoln's successor to the presidency. Lincoln's successor and uh, wildly unpopular with Congress. The Congress was looking for any way to get rid of him, essentially. And he violated the Tenure of Office Act, which was basically said that he could not fire uh, Senate-approved cabinet members without Senate approval, and he fired the Secretary of War. And so the Congress impeached him for that. Um, though interestingly enough, there were two additional articles that kind of gave away what they were really up to. The uh, one article said he had made intemperate and scandalous harangues against Congress, presumably on his kind of, uh, what was that speech tour called that he was on, the circle around the, I can't remember now. But he, uh, and then the, the, the final article was basically about his interference with uh, Reconstruction. 
but the most of the case was about this this kind of narrow violation of the Tenure of Office Act, and of course he was not removed. The Clinton impeachment was also about narrow legal issues, perjury. He lied under oath during the course of investigation and obstruction of justice for supposedly uh, preventing witnesses and documents and those kinds of things to during that investigation. The one I skipped over, of course, the impeachment that never happened, but the president that actually resigned, uh, Richard Nixon, he was charged more broadly, uh, well, first with obstruction of justice, but he was also uh, with charged with abuse of power. And I think that the Nixon process, right, that doesn't actually result in, it results in res- resignation rather than impeachment, is kind of more analogous to the Trump impeachment uh, because you had a much kind of broader set of charges. And in that case, too, the, the, the issue was interfering with an election, right? The, the, yes. the, the Watergate matter began with a burglary of the opposition political party, of the Democratic National Committee. And uh, the question was, was the president complicit in that? Uh, and in the end, uh, evidence was found that if not complicit in actually ordering the burglary, uh, though I think now most scholars uh, assume that Nixon knew what was going on and knew that, in fact, something like that was happening, uh, though there wasn't necessarily direct evidence of that, there was direct evidence that Nixon tried to cover up uh, the existence of that action and his role in it. And beyond that, there had been a whole, the, the, this plumber's operation that burglarized the Watergate Hotel, uh, the, the the Democratic uh, offices there, uh, actually had been involved in other kinds of illegal activity, like burglarizing the office of the, the, psych, of the psychiatrist of Daniel Ellsberg, uh, who they were trying to get some information on, Daniel Ellsberg, the man who leaked the Pentagon Papers. And so there was a whole uh, host of activities that Nixon was didn't want revealed uh, that that he had been involved in, in, in setting up. There were ways uh, in which he was using his power as president right. to kind of corrupt the political process. Right. And that was a kind of abuse of power. I've always, I thought another interesting aspect of the Nixon case... Paul, was that although Nixon proclaimed kind of a broad understanding of executive privilege, uh, he and his attorney general had made statements during Watergate about how the president could, in fact, issue an order that nobody testify before Congress, that that was part of executive privilege. He never really exercised that. In fact, when the Watergate hearings were held uh, prior to impeachment to investigate what was going on, in the Watergate affair, Nixon allowed his people in the White House staff to testify. So, so that's kind of interesting that Nixon uh, didn't go as far as Trump. Trump sort of out Nixon, Nick, Nixon here. Nixon also turned over the tapes when the Supreme Court told him to. We did not reach that point in the Trump matter, but right. who knows what would have happened if the Supreme Court had ordered Trump to uh, turn over documents or produce witnesses. So this Sunday in the New York Times, a couple of uh, legal scholars wrote an article about sort of what we could conclude from the impeachment process. And they made a really, uh, it was kind of a very optimistic article uh, in in which they said, and I'll quote, the authors were Neil K. Katyal and Joshua Geltzer. Uh, One was a 
former acting solicitor general of the United States, and the other Geltzer was a former deputy legal advisor and senior director of counterterrorism for the National Security Council. So, so they had this to say. They said, the impeachment process was a process that yielded a public education of extraordinary value. While the Senate may emerge from the process weakened, the American people emerge from it strengthened by a sharpened sense of what's right and what's wrong for an American president, of what it means for a political party to show moral courage of truth no matter what the consequences, and of the importance of whistleblowers for ensuring accountability. What do you think about that statement? I agree with you that that's awfully optimistic. I don't think that that's what the the takeaway from impeachment probably will be. I think it seems like uh, a probably a tightening of of partisanship in the wake of what 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 just occurred. Not uh, not a kind of broad based portion of the American public thinking that the Democrats were doing the right thing. Yeah, and the acquittal of President Trump certainly has not chastened him at all. Uh, we've already seen in just the you know, week since he was, uh, since the trial, he's arranged the dismissal of people who testified against him. That's and to, to me, the, the those dismissing Vindman from the National Security Council is, um, and his brother, of course, is is kind of abhorrent, but it's also his prerogative. The thing that I found really upsetting uh, was the news that came down yesterday about the attorney general interfering in the sentencing of uh, Trump associate Roger Stone uh, for perjury and other crimes related to his uh, refusals to cooperate with the Mueller investigation. So essentially what you have is the Department of Justice acting on behalf of the president to do a favor for one of the president's associates in a federal trial. And it's it's, it's kind of mind-blowing. That itself, in another era, would have been considered abuse of power, I would Absolutely. think. Absolutely. And, and the, the four prosecutors who were involved all resigned yesterday. In protest. And so it's, um, if you, I guess if you compare it to the, the Nixon situation, Nixon was covering up a variety of crimes, but really it stemmed from one main crime, the break-in at the Watergate. It's starting to feel like there's kind of an ongoing effort to insulate Trump from any sort of uh, oversight by the Congress or by the Department of Justice, which has traditionally been independent within the executive branch. And I think that's dangerous. Of course, the really dangerous step might be if uh, the Department of Justice would, <clears throat> as Trump's all often threatened to do, bring prosecutions against Trump's political opponents. In fact, he tweeted yesterday, I think, that he wants the prosecutors who proposed this, this sentence, sentence for Stone themselves to be investigated, these prosecutors that resigned. So you get a favorable treatment by the Department of Justice. You get a lower sentence if you're one of Trump's allies and one of his one of his conspirators, and you get investigated if you are one of his political enemies. It, that's that's a, a really dangerous proposition, and it's it's why the Department of Justice has always been um, seen as rather independent. Paul, I, I wanted, I'm interested in kind of a very kind of different take on all of this. You teach constitutional law. You teach about the Supreme Court. Uh, the things we've been talking about are sort of the meat and potatoes of your courses. 
How do you approach discussion of something like the impeachment of President Trump in the classroom without appearing partisan? I mean, from what you said here, uh, from your sort of expert analysis of, you know, what does high crimes and misdemeanors mean, uh, you've clearly sided with the interpretation that the House managers took as opposed to Trump's defenders. So is there a way in which you can approach that in the classroom without students coming away and saying, oh, Heron's just a, a Democrat uh, and he's making he's, he's on the side of people who don't like Trump? I, I think one of my one of my kind of guiding principles in the classroom is to ensure that my students understand what the arguments are on both sides. I think that some arguments are better than others. There's certainly an argument that that Trump did not abuse power. There's also an argument that the House should have gone to the courts before bringing uh, obstruction of Congress charges. And actually, the, his uh, Trump's defenders, his lawyers, uh, did make, or, or I don't know if his lawyers made that argument, but certainly there were senators who said that they thought uh, the Trump's phone call with the president of Ukraine was wrong, but it didn't rise to the level of impeachment. So they saw it as a kind of maybe a mini abuse of power, but not serious enough to dismiss the president. Certainly very few made that statement. It wasn't like during the Clinton impeachment where almost everybody said that Clinton was wrong, but this is not impeachable, even his own attorneys. Right. Um, so I, I, I think that Trump's unique approach to politics and his unique personality dictate that people say that they're with him, that they don't criticize. Um, so that that makes it difficult to take that kind of stance to say he did he did the wrong thing, but it's not impeachable. So, so back to the classroom, I interrupted you there. Uh, did you have more to say about how you would address these issues? I mean, I personally, I like arguments. So I want, I want, I even liked Dershowitz's arguments because it's, as a lawyer, I like to think of the many ways you could represent your client. Uh, his, his, his argument that a president could not abuse power by cheating an election because he thought it was in the national interest for him to get reelected was really something. <laughs> I don't know if that would fly on a, on a law school exam. That kind of is a sign of a good defense attorney, right? Sure. You, you sort of sort of stretch do, things uh, and see what see what works. You do you you do what you can with what you have. So you know, I I, I, I think it's uh, I think it's always important in the classroom to not make speeches about uh, you know one side being right and one side being wrong, but to try to articulate what the arguments are. And I, you know, it, I, I guess I'm lucky because most of what I deal with are legal arguments, and there's usually something there. Some often one side is weaker than the others, and 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 the students can make that decision. Um, but I'm 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 not doing my job if everybody doesn't understand what the arguments are that are being made. Right. Though, I think in the era of Trump, when so many times Trump you know, violates sort of long-held norms, you know, like you don't interfere in the sentencing of, sentencing of a prosecution brought by the Justice Department. I mean, that, that's something that we haven't seen before. 
it's it really is a challenge. You Very know. difficult to offer a reasonable explanation for that kind of behavior. Right. It's not acceptable. Yeah. I think that it's it, it's often useful to find uh, Republicans who are uh, making criticisms about that kind of thing to make the point. Right. And we had one Republican in the trial last week, uh, Senator Mitt Romney from Utah, who in fact uh, did make an argument that the president had abused power. Uh, one lone Republican who was willing to bear Trump's wrath, uh, and he's certainly been denounced yes. by Trump for doing that. So, uh, well, I want to segue into a discussion, uh, Paul, of the current Supreme Court term. Uh, you're now teaching your Supreme Court course, and I know in that course you examine uh, the cases before the Supreme Court uh, right now. And maybe we could begin with uh, cases related to uh, Trump and the impeachment. There's this case of uh, this fellow Don McGahn who provided information to the uh, Mueller prosecutors and Congress and the Judiciary Committee of the House uh, invited McGahn to testify, subpoenaed him, uh, and uh, McGahn defied that subpoena. And the Judiciary Committee, if I understand it, essentially has brought suit in federal court uh, to compel McGahn to testify. Uh, is is that matter, uh, and that matter uh, relates directly to executive privilege, right, uh, that McGahn had claimed it does executive that. privilege. And is that likely to come before the court? Uh, Maybe. It's not come, but the, the lower court decision on it was not in favor of Trump or McGahn. Right. So the court did not accept this broad based notion of executive privilege. The the two there are two cases, though, that the court has accepted that that are are kind of connected to Trump. Um, Both are about his financial records. One case is out of New York where the uh, where a grand jury subpoenaed some of his tax returns and financial papers. Another has to do with uh, subpoenas from the House. And they've been consolidated and they'll be up for um, argument in at the end of March. This is going to be kind of the interesting question about what what the court does with these cases, because in, in both cases, the lower courts held against Trump and said he had to turn over these documents or it wasn't Trump that had to turn them over even it was a third party that had to turn them over right it was accountants that had to turn them over and so there's uh, there's very little argument that he can make that it has to do with executive privilege or that it or that it will interfere with his duties as president because he's not even the one who has to do the uh, disclosing it's his accountants. The Supreme Court will hear arguments in those cases in March. Is yes. Oh, in really? March. Those are going to be the ones to watch more than the um, the the McGann case, at least for the moment. And if if the court the court normally would make a decision then by June on those cases, right? Yes. Yeah. So that's before the election. It's before the election. An interesting thing happened with the court this year. The controversy surrounding the Brett Kavanaugh nomination last year made it so the court wanted to kind of punt on a couple of more controversial issues uh, since the since there have been some you know kind of a lot of politics injected into the court. So those those cases are now coming up this year. Ironically, this is a presidential election year, so you know it was kind of out of the frying pan and into the fire 
uh, with regard to trying to stay out of politics. That'll be interesting. (laughs) One of those is is a Second Amendment case that's out of New York that will be interesting to see what they do. You want me to talk a little about that? Sure. So there's a New York City regulation that made it so if you had a gun permit to keep a to keep a gun in your house, you could not travel with that gun outside of the city. You could only take it to kind of designated firing ranges and have it repaired and things like that. So the plaintiffs brought case, uh, brought suit that said this was a violation of their their Second Amendment rights and um, sought injunctive relief, basically saying that the you know asking the court to strike down the law. And in the meantime, this this came up last year. Um, in one of the cases that the court pushed off. And in the meantime, the, the city has repealed the regulation that the plaintiffs argue was violating their Second Amendment rights. And New York State has put into place a law that grants even more rights with regard to traveling with your guns. And so the question now is whether the court can even address the Second Amendment claims and whether or not the case is m- moot. And this will be the, the, the arguments already took place in um, early December, and much of the arguments were about mootness. The only thing I can see with the court issuing a decision on the Second Amendment would be if the court decides that they don't like the idea of granting cert in a case and then the state or municipality uh, rescinding the law so that they can't make a decision about the case. I, I, but uh, you know, otherwise, it just feels like they're making a decision about something that's no longer an issue. But there might be some justices who, who simply want to take up the Second Amendment issue, right? That this was an opportunity for them to sort of define more specifically the scope of this right to own arms. Right, that's the uh, goal. Because the to, most important Second Amendment case really ever uh, was in 2008 was D.C. versus Heller, which found a kind of separate individual right to bear arms outside of militia service. That was then extended to the states two years later, and we haven't really revisited the Second Amendment in a decade. And a lot of lower courts have taken pretty liberal views about gun regulations. Yeah, well, in both those cases, in the Heller case, the late Justice Scalia wrote the majority opinion, right? And he explicitly said, uh, you have a right to bear arms. That that doesn't mean that the state doesn't have the right to impose some regulations on that right. It was just like you have a right to drive an automobile, but the state can regulate, you know, how you drive that. The question is, what are allowable regulations and what, what are not? And so some of the more conservative justices, especially Thomas, want to, um, further define, those limits because lower courts have taken a variety of, of, of positions. Right. Uh, actually, in some ways, the situation here is similar to the court's relationship to abortion after the Casey decision, where uh, in Casey, the, the court affirmed a right to a woman's right to abortion, but said that regulation by the state was permissible and they've been arguing cases for now a couple of decades about exactly what the scope of those regulations right. are. This is, right? this is the kind of move away from the standards set down in row to this so-called undue burden test. Right. And the you know the un, like so many of the tests before the Supreme Court, 
it's the limits are in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Uh, so you, you could imagine an undue burden test for owning a for owning arms, right? Right. You can own you you can regulate the ownership of arms as long as you don't impose some kind of undue burden on the ability of of someone to actual actually use those arms in a way that is legitimate that they want to do they want to use it right right and so in this this New York case you could say the requirement that they uh, could only take the firearm to to a, a gun range in certain areas was an undue burden on the ownership of right that's, that's what I'm suggesting it's kind of analogous here it is it's just it just depends on whether or not they want to essentially issue an advisory opinion at this point which is kind of contrary to the Constitution that they're supposed to be dealing with cases and controversies and whether or not they think this case is the vehicle for kind of further defining Second Amendment rights what's your sense having heard the oral arguments uh, on on how the courts likely to go on this are they going to sort of escape making a judgment by saying the issues moot or I can't say 100%, but I, most of the arguments were about mootness. So I think that it's likely going to fail on that grounds, and they're going to have to, Second Amendment advocates are going to have to find another uh, vehicle for bringing a, an issue before the court. Okay, and, and what other cases should we be looking out for in the coming term? The uh, DACA case, which is uh, one of the major cases has already been argued before the court. And this is the issue about the Obama-era program called uh, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, where people who came to the United States illegally as children could apply uh, through a process for you know, deferred action on any deportation and they would have to go through a criminal background check and and all kinds of other hoops, but they would essentially exempt themselves from executive enforcement of immigration laws with regard to, to them. There, I think it's about 700,000 people who were affected by this program. The Trump administration came into office, and lots of Trump's rhetoric about immigration was very strong against immigration, but this program has been pretty popular um, across ideological boundaries where people think that, you know, children who arrive in America and don't haven't ever lived anywhere else uh, should be able to stay in America, especially those who are not committing crimes. Many of them are serving in the military. Many of them are students in universities or employees in all kinds of fields. They are uh, members of society and they're uh, American in, in, in every sense. So what happened was Jeff Sessions, when he was attorney general, issued a finding that the Obama decision to implement DACA was uh, unlawful and unconstitutional. And so the Department of Homeland Security then went by that decision of the attorney general. The problem is that when making this kind of decision, the executive branch cannot do something as arbitrary and capricious, right? This is from the Administrative Procedures Act. The idea is that administrators can affect the rights of a lot of people. So if they're going to make a decision that affects the rights of a lot of people, they have to offer a reasonable justification. For, for doing so. 
Since Sessions claimed DACA was unlawful and unconstitutional, he opened the door for review by the courts to, in fact, determine whether or not it was unlawful and unconstitutional. The lower courts found that it was, in fact, constitutional, that it it was within the power of the Obama administration to implement. Now, if it's in the power of the Obama administration to implement, then it should be in the power of the Trump administration to dismantle. I think this becomes a political question where the Trump administration might not want to publicly rescind DACA because it's a popular program. So it was easier to say simply that it's unlawful and therefore we can't continue implementing it. It feels a lot like the census case that took place last term when the court was uh, suspicious about the reasons the Commerce Department wanted to include a citizenship question on the census. It was something that the the administration should have been able to do, but they failed to give a reason that the court believed was uh, truthful. And so Roberts ended up siding with the liberals. Yeah, and in that case, there was evidence, in fact, that the reason that the Commerce Department wanted to add the citizenship question was because they thought it would discourage particularly Hispanic people uh, not to participate in, this, in, the, in the census and skew the census results in a way that would reduce representation of, of districts where uh, that were more favorable to Democrats, right? right. The- so it was a partisan reason, but they, but they didn't, but, but rather than, that, that was the actual reason, but they made a claim that this was because of a need to what implement the Voting, Voting Rights Act, yeah. and and the court was suspicious of that argument. Roberts, in particular, because he sided with the liberals in order to kind of reject the effort by the Commerce Department. The difference, though, is that with the census, there was a time constraint. The census needed to get underway by a certain date, so the administration, once it failed before the Supreme Court it wasn't able to kind of come back with some other set of reasons that could allow them to proceed with putting the question on. In this situation, it may be that DACA is saved for the moment, but the Trump administration can rescind it if they want to. It, it was done by the executive. It can be undone by the executive. Yeah, so if I could clarify, what, what's before the Supreme Court now is whether or not Obama's institution of DACA was lawful and unconstitutional, because that... That was the rationale that Sessions gave for not continuing it, right? Rather than Sessions simply coming in and saying, we think this is bad policy and we're going to change it. Well, the court has to decide first whether the decision by the Department of Homeland Security to uh, get rid of DACA is judicially reviewable. Right. So the first question is whether or not they can even review this kind of decision made by the executive branch. Mm -hmm. As you can imagine, the Trump administration is saying that it's not judicially reviewable. Mm -hmm. And then they have to decide whether or not this decision to wind it down was actually lawful. Now, I don't think this is going to be getting to the question of whether or not DACA itself was constitutional because the courts have found that it was. the, the question here is about 
the Administrative Procedures Act more narrowly and about how the Trump administration is, is attempting to stop DACA. And so there could even be a decision that goes against the Trump administration's position, but that wouldn't necessarily prevent them at some future date of winding down DACA based upon some other premise, right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay. Because presumably Trump could say, I'm winding down DACA because I got elected on kind of different premises than my predecessor. People want me to control immigration, so. Right. So uh, other important cases. Isn't there something about the Affordable Care Act that is before the court? There is. There's another narrow question about birth control requirements before the court. I'm not sure how how expansive that's going to end up being. It's kind of a narrow question. I'd say the most the most interesting cases that are that are before the court right now have to do first. There's a uh, a question about Title VII of the Civil Rights Act um, and whether that applies to gays and lesbians and to transgender individuals. Remind us what Title VII is about. Um, Title VII is about employment discrimination, and one of the provisions is that you cannot discriminate because of sex. And so the question before the court is, is this prohibition on discrimination because of sex, does that include sexual orientation, and does it include gender identity? There are two separate cases, one where someone was fired for being homosexual, the other one someone was fired for presenting as a different gender than they were assigned at birth. So the court's going to be deciding that. Have they heard the oral arguments on that yet? or They have. They have. Okay. And this is, this is an interesting case because if you take an, a, a kind of originalist view, it's almost impossible to argue that, that in 1964 the Congress meant for this to apply to sexual orientation or gender identity, right? But if you take a more kind of textual argument, the because of sex language could be construed to mean if I were a man married to a man and I were fired for the fact that I were married to a man, I would not have been fired if I were a woman and been married to the same man. That's the argument. That might get Neil Gorsuch, who asked some questions that were kind of favorable to both sides in this case, but I'd be surprised if it does. So anything else? We have a, an abortion case coming up that could be very important um, to continue the blockbusters. There's a, and, and one other. This is the undue burden test, right? This is the undue burden test, but just to, to make one more point about the about the last set of cases to do with sexual sexual orientation and gender identity, the loss of Anthony Kennedy is going to be felt in that issue. He kind of uh, that was one of the issues where he always, almost always sided with the with the liberal justices. And the abortion case is also one where Kennedy uh, sided with liberals in the most recent abortion decision. And the most recent abortion decision was called Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstadt, this is a Texas case where the court determined that the requirement that doctors in abortion clinics have admitting privileges at local hospitals constituted an undue burden. The irony here is that the, the law that they're reviewing this term is almost indistinguishable from the law that they were reviewing 
in that case in 2014. The question is whether the composition of the court is going to change the outcome of the case. This, the, the case before the court now is called uh, June Medical Services versus Russo, and it's a Louisiana case about a Louisiana law that requires admitting privileges for uh, doctors in abortion clinics, very similar to the law in Texas. The uh, district court struck it down based on the earlier case, and then the conservative Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld it. It came up before the court last term. The court had the option to either uh, stay the law to prevent it from going into effect and then take the case and make a decision or not take the case and let the law go into effect. Uh, The court decided to stay the law and that required Justice Roberts to join the liberals, uh, which is interesting because this is another instance where Roberts took a position that was in many ways to, to kind of save institutional face, right? He, he saw that if they allowed the Fifth Circuit to overturn a, the, a Supreme Court decision without weighing in, uh, it could be a, a problem. And so he voted with the liberals to stay the law, and then now they're going to hear the case. That does not mean that Justice Roberts is going to vote to strike down the law. It it means that they'll they'll hear the case. I I would be surprised if he if he if he does because he was in the he was in the minority on the last case. So you're saying they're likely to overturn that previous Texas overturn the previous Texas case. The question is, how far will they go? It's it's an opportunity where they could uh, pare back the un, undue burden test, or even even go back and reconsider Roe itself and the idea that there's a fundamental right uh, to abortion. Right. In this in this very case, they could overturn Roe itself. You're saying they could, but that's I mean, you think that's unlikely. I I would be surprised if they that's that would be a a pretty big step. But it's certainly if they would overturn that Texas decision, that would signal to state legislatures that they could impose other kinds of restrictions on abortion, correct? Yes, right. so exactly. That would be and anything else we need to... One of my favorites that's coming up is this idea of the faithless elector, okay. which I think is going to be interesting. Well, I, you know, Political scientists love to talk about the electoral <laughs> college. Okay. So, you know, this is a case um, out of Washington, and it's... You know, Washington State imposes a fine on electors who vote uh, in a way that they that that goes against the, the the popular vote in the state. Yeah, these are like this is the obscure. The, one of the things that most people don't do not understand about the electoral college that that when we vote for president, we vote to choose electors who then are supposed to go and vote uh, for the person who won uh, the plurality in whatever state we're voting, right? Right. And these electors normally do that, right? Normally they're, they're, uh, they're faithful to uh, the person they claim to represent. Yes. But occasionally uh, an elector will, sh- will show up the day the Electoral College meets and vote for somebody that uh, they weren't pledged to. 
And the, the question the court's trying to, to answer is whether or not this is this is something that the states can punish. That do they do they even have kind of jurisdiction over electors, and and whether or not it it violates the First Amendment rights of electors to kind of have their say. Uh, you know, I would be very surprised if if the court comes down on some very old vision of the electoral college where the electors get to do as they want. Uh, it's just kind of contrary to how everything is operated for the the course of American history. And if we... Well, that's interesting, Paul, because I, I mean that goes against originalism, right? I mean, you would think the originalist would say, when the Constitution was written, the assumption was that electors would be free to vote for whomever they wanted. I mean, the, the words of the Constitution seem to imply that, right? And so you would think these textualist originalists on the court would say uh, the state of Washington has no right to restrict the ability of a elector to vote for whomever he or she wishes. Perhaps. The tough, the tough thing, though, is, you know, you're someone who's very politically engaged. Can you name an elector from your state no, from any election no. ever? No, neither, neither can I. And so that's, that, that poses a major problem, right? But that's not how the system has operated for many years. We haven't, um, we haven't elected electors as, you know, kind of thoughtful representatives of our kind of collective choice. So I, I, I think that it'll be very difficult to, to make that argument. All right, so you think the court is going to adopt a living constitution approach on this issue, <laughs> but right? I, That it, it, it has to adjust to the way society is is operating perhaps but i think the electoral college has never really operated in the in in the way that you describe right absolutely so we don't like george washington right i mean so (laughs) it's you know this isn't something where this has kind of changed over in the 1960s or something this is kind of long-standing so i don't think they have to go so far as to say that they're all in on a living constitution at this point so no more faithless electors no i i don't think so we'll see okay Well, thanks for that rundown, Paul. Uh, Now we know what to look out for in the next months. And it sounds like at the end of the term, when the court issues all its decisions, uh, we're going to have some interesting ones that will be made that are going to have, as usual, impact on the life of Americans. So we'll look forward to, to watching that. So, Paul, thanks very much for your insights on impeachment. Uh, and on what the court is doing. And we'll bring you back sometime to, to follow up on probably both those issues in some respects. Okay, thanks, Bill. Thanks. thanks once again to Beyond the News Feeds production assistant, Reagan Wind, PC Class of 2020. And we continue to be grateful to Joe Carr, Vice President for Marketing and Communications, and his staff for their support. Most of all, many thanks to our listeners, Please tell four friends to subscribe to Beyond Your News Feed, wherever they get their podcasts, and keep listening. Thanks. <laughs>